Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. If we are to believe certain Manson family members, as many as 35 murders were committed by Manson and or his followers although those figures may have been exaggerated by Manson and family members like Susan Atkins, who seem to delight in their reputations as outlaws, even, or maybe especially, after it cost them their freedom. Still, most discussion of the quote-unquote Manson murders centers around the horrible deaths of actress Sharon Tate and her friends at the home she shared with Roman Polanski on August 9th, 1969. But as we've tried to show in this series, the killing of Tate and friends was part of a chain of events. Today, we're going to talk about the first Manson family murder, the murder that catalyzed the more famous Manson murders, and we're going to learn about the man who is currently in prison for committing that murder, a man who never considered himself a member of the Manson family at all, a man who has alternately taken responsibility for the killing, claimed Charles Manson had nothing to do with it, and also, on the witness stand, said it was Manson himself who wielded the murder weapon. Bobby Beausoleil is the Manson-associated killer who stood the best chance of making it into Hollywood or L.A. cultural history books, 
for what he did before his association with Charles Manson. A musician, sometime actor, and undisputed stud, had Bobby Beausoleil not been a convicted murderer, he'd be known as a key collaborator of one of the most important experimental filmmakers of the 20th century. A filmmaker who also changed the face of the Hollywood gossip industry. Bobby's tortured, on-again, off-again relationship with this filmmaker makes for at least as compelling a story as his relationship with Manson. Join us, won't you, as we tell the story of Bobby Beausoleil, murderer and sometime muse to Kenneth Anger. Born in 1947, Bobby Beausoleil ran away from home at the age of 12, after years of suffering all manner of abuse at the hands of his parents. He was found, brought back, sent to reform school, and then made a ward of the state when he was 14. He was supposed to go live with his grandma in Santa Barbara, but he actually ended up living in a trailer with a couple of other guys. Bobby back then was self-described as a greasy punk. He worked a little bit at a gas station, fixing cars. But even back then, he was thinking bigger. He believed his destiny dated back to what he called ancient Germany. After an arrest for stealing, he was sent back to reform school, where he'd have nightly dreams about a Viking goddess. He believed he was a warrior, had believed it ever since he had been a little boy, when he crafted a Viking helmet out of a large tin coffee can, and disappeared from his rotten home life into fantasies, in which Bobby was the dominant one, in which Bobby won every fight. Released from reform school, Bobby, who is now calling himself the Lone Eagle, went with the wind, as he put it, and ended up first in L.A. and then in San Francisco, where he formed a band inspired by Sun Ra's orchestra, called Chamber Orchestra, which played a legendary acid-fueled Christmas party in 1966. And sometime around then, Bobby started living with Kenneth Anger. In 1966, there was a real, thriving, experimental film scene, which was underground in the sense that it wasn't funded by Hollywood, and its products usually didn't show in conventional movie theaters. But it was mainstream enough that its stars and controversies would get written about in places like Newsweek. Its kings were Andy Warhol, who was cranking out endurance films like Sleep and Empire, as well as semi-narratives like Chelsea Girls, and Kenneth Anger, whose films were at once more subversive and more entertaining, prefiguring music videos and their use of pop music, while at the same time taking as their main subjects gay and sadomasochistic sex, black magic, and movies themselves. Anger was an L.A. native who had acted in one Hollywood film as a child, a version of Midsummer Night's Dream starring Mickey Rooney. Anger, who identified as queer from an early age, felt alienated from his immediate family and gravitated towards his grandmother, who lived with a woman who had worked on film sets in the 1920s. Kenneth's grandmother's girlfriend told the kids stories about all the private lives of all the stars, casting their drug problems and sexual peccadilloes as cautionary tales. But in Anger's mind, the damaged lives of the Rudolph Valentinos and Clara Bowes 
took on epic proportions. The stars themselves became pagan gods and goddesses, and Hollywood, a mystical kingdom ever on the verge of crumbling thanks to the decadence of its occupants. As a teenager, Anger began pairing his star worship with the teachings of the occultist Alastair Crowley, who came up with the idea of sex magic. Magic with a K, with the K meant to symbolize the Greek word for vagina, although Crowley also wrote openly about his own homosexual experiences and of phallic worship as a spiritual act. To Crowley, magic was the act of creating change with one's own will, a definition which might have appealed to Charles Manson, and which definitely appealed to Kenneth Anger, who felt resentful that his one experience of child stardom hadn't led to an invitation into the magic kingdom of Hollywood. Anger would go on to devote his life and work to combining these obsessions. The occult mysticism of Crowley, his specific sexual fetishes, his alternating attraction to Hollywood, and his anger over first having been rejected, and then, later, he felt, exploited by the mainstream film industry. In the late 1940s, being openly gay in most American communities was both criminalized and stigmatized. For anger and a lot of gay men of his generation, their desires and sexual lives were wrapped up in danger, to the point where the thrill of attraction and the thrill of risking getting caught could be indistinguishable. Anger's first major film, Fireworks, was kind of a dream autobiography stemming from an incident in which Kenneth was arrested for public homosexual activity, having been entrapped by vice cops in, of all places, the camera obscura on the beach in Santa Monica. Anger played himself in fireworks as a young man who cruises handsome sailors and is beaten by them in a public urinal, a violent experience that's eroticized and even beautified. In its time, fireworks was considered pornographic, and until 1948, Anger would only show it privately. The film is full of blatant and beautifully filmed sexuality, but it also has jokes and nods to surrealism. When it was finally distributed, it caused a sensation, mostly in a good way. Its success allowed Anger to meet Hollywood stars like Gene Kelly, but also people who were stars just to Anger, like Anais Nin and Margaret Cameron, the wife of Jack Parsons, who is credited as the inventor of rocket fuel. But Cameron and Parsons were up to some other things as well. They were heavily into Crowley's sex magic stuff, and in 1952, Parsons died, exploding in an accident while conducting some kind of ritual in his garage. Cameron and Parsons were real heroes to anger, and the widow, who Dennis Hopper called an out-and-out witch, became part of Anger's coterie, appearing with Nin in Anger's film, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, a dramatization of some of Crowley's sex magic theories in the form of a tribute to MGM musicals, making it perhaps the Ur-Anger film. But Anger's most influential film was Scorpio Rising, his love letter to biker dudes, which he shot in 1962, and which would be credited for everything from popularizing leather jackets to influencing Martin Scorsese's use of pop music. When Easy Rider became a phenomena at the end of the decade, Anger himself accused Dennis Hopper, who had hung out a bit with Anger in the 1950s, 
of ripping off Scorpio Rising's biker fetishism. In fact, Hopper's precursors, Russ Meyer and Roger Corman, probably did see the sensation Scorpio Rising had created on the underground scene and borrowed the biker milieu for their own exploitation films. Though his work was always well-received on the underground film circuits and would serve the function for aspiring filmmakers that Velvet Underground Records did for aspiring art rockers, Anger always had trouble making and keeping money. By the late 1950s, he was living in Paris, destitute, and he begged Cahiers de Cinema to let him publish some articles about old Hollywood. These articles became a book, combining Anger's embellished versions of the stories he heard as a child and through third- and fourth-hand gossip with often grotesque photos, like the kind published in antagonistic Hollywood tabloids, like Confidential. Hollywood Babylon was published first as a coffee table book in France, then a bootleg underground version came out in America in 1964 and sold well. And finally, a publishing wing of Rolling Stone magazine put out a quote-unquote legitimate version in 1975. This release transformed Kenneth Anger from a respected but little-known experimental filmmaker into a well-known expert on the tawdriest of Hollywood gossip. Anger became a regular on the nostalgia and movie memorabilia circuits, where he was treated as a scholar, despite the fact that no version of Hollywood Babylon was ever fact-checked, and most of the stories in it, though sometimes accurate in spirit, are in their details probably apocryphal. In between these eras of Anger's career, in the mid to late 1960s, he lived in San Francisco, where he gobbled a bunch of acid and became determined to make films capturing the new youth movement overtaking the city. In 1964, Scorpio Rising was booked at the North Beach Movie Theater, which Anger rented an apartment above. Anger, sensing an opportunity, papered the neighborhood with articles about the Hells Angels. Real-life bikers came to see the movie and were pissed at having their culture homoeroticized. And both Anger and the Angels got a lot of press, which had been Anger's intention the whole time. It also didn't ultimately hurt the film when the Los Angeles Vice Squad seized it, leading to a jury trial at which Scorpio Rising was deemed obscene and banned, briefly, until the state Supreme Court overturned the decision. By that point, Scorpio Rising was well known enough that it could play not just underground and adult theaters, but art houses. Straight people, in both senses of the word, wanted to see what all the fuss was about. A similar thing happened in 1966. The same San Francisco movie theater promoted a revival of inauguration of the Pleasure Dome as an acid test program, inviting hippies to drop LSD in the movie theater. The run was still going on after two months when LSD was made illegal, making the anger screenings a safe public space in which to drop and for drug culture tourists to come and gawk at the tripping hippies. Anger became obsessed with capturing the lightning of the quote-unquote love trip in a bottle. He started planning a film called Lucifer Rising about a fallen angel in the age of Aquarius. Anger's first choice for the part of Lucifer had been Godo Palakis, 
the child, by various reports aged three or five, of Vito Palakis, mentioned in our first episode of this series as a ringleader of Laurel Canyon hippies and assorted freaks who were known for staging wildly erotic dances at Sunset Strip clubs. Vito and his partner, Carl Franzoni, had been heading a commune which was taken over, to some extent, by Frank Zappa in 1968. Two years earlier, on December 23, 1966, Vito's child died in their Laurel Canyon home after falling through either a trapdoor or a skylight on the roof of the commune home. With Godot gone, Anger decided Lucifer should probably be an adult, and he started playing the casting couch game. He'd go out and pick up a young man and bring him home with a promise of putting him into a movie as Lucifer. And then he'd meet a new guy and kick the last guy out. Godot Palakis and Bobby Beausoleil had something in common. They both appeared in a pretty incredible quasi-staged documentary called Mondo Hollywood, which aimed to capture all manner of freaks on the Hollywood scene. And since there's ample evidence that Bobby knew Frank Zappa, chances are he probably either met Godot or at least knew his parents. Some reports suggest Anger might have met Bobby in 1965 in L.A., where then 18-year-old Bobby was playing in an early version of the band Love, which had a gig at a private gay club on Melrose Place. Others suggest the meeting happened in San Francisco in late 1966, either in an event organized by Anger where he was showing films and lecturing on Crawley, or at a massive organized orgy where Bobby was playing guitar. No matter, at some point, Anger became obsessed with Bobby, who was, without a doubt, a fox. He also stood out from the hippie crowd. He was well-groomed, and he almost looked like a dandy in his soft leather pants and black top hat. You will become the beloved, and through me you will rise to be feared and held in reverence, Anger told Bobby. As Bobby remembered it, He said I'd be remembered for generations. I said it sounded okay to me. Bobby was not a total novice actor. In Mondo Hollywood, he had played the part of a shirtless Cupid in one of the film's likely less than documentary sections. But he wasn't prepared for Anger's version of filmmaking. Bobby moved into Anger's house, a Victorian mansion which had previously served as the Russian embassy. The walls were purple and the moldings orange, and the floorboards were painted all different colors and seemed to vibrate. Anger had also filled the place with black magic stuff. Anger was in league with The Process, a British-based cult which, incidentally, had also inspired Charles Manson to some extent, and which had stolen a bunch of artifacts from the Alastair Crowley estate, many of which ended up in Anger's San Francisco house. Anger had already had a boy living with him, but when Bobby showed up, Anger kicked the boy out, telling him, This is Lucifer, and he must live in his temple. But unlike presumably at least some of his predecessors, Bobby wasn't up for a sexual relationship with Anger, free rent or no. Bobby was resolutely straight. He didn't care that Kenneth was gay, he just didn't swing that way. And he didn't stop swinging the other way, even though he knew Anger got upset when he'd bring girls home. Instead of paying for his actor's services, 
Anger gave Bobby food and shelter and a walking stick with snakes carved into the handle, which had allegedly belonged to Crowley. Bobby said he didn't believe in any of Anger's black magic or Satanist stuff. Until Anger started giving him pure LSD. With the drugs and Anger's encouragement, Bobby started to believe that he really was Lucifer. Or, as he called himself, The Angel of Disobedience. On one trip, Bobby would remember later, he lay on a bed in Anger's house, a so-called altar bed, draped with blue velvet curtains. Anger started chanting Crowley quotes, and Bobby felt like he was receiving cosmic jolts while the fires of hell floated around him. Suddenly, a great shaft of light drove down and penetrated my chest. It kept pouring over me, this great shaft of white light. It became everything. I was like obsessed experiencing all there was. All the blood and the killing, I was being killed. There were a million moving things, all the death and destruction. It was in my mind, it was in the environment. Voice of the magician kept on. Each word he said was the crackling of fire. I had no fear. I was being born into all the events of my life. Everything that had been was dead. I was being reborn, being baptized by tongues of fire. Great demon eyes were glowing above me. Huge, vacant, no fear in those eyes. I was complete. All was complete. There was a great shattering completeness in the cosmic forces. Born into this Flash Gordon world, there was I, wielding the great golden sword of the Vikings. So that was intense. After that, Bobby was clearly ready to star in Lucifer Rising, so Anger started filming. It was an unconventional production process. There was no script or outline. Anger would just set up situations and tell Bobby what to do while he filmed. And there was no set shooting schedule. When Anger had money, he'd buy a roll of film and they'd shoot it. Otherwise, Bobby would just be hanging out, waiting for something to happen. He started pestering Anger to get the show on the road. Anger got defensive. He didn't like an actor telling him what to do. This tense situation continued for the better part of a year. Bobby had formed a new band called the Magic Powerhouse of Oz to compose and play the soundtrack for Anger's film. The band performed at an event in September 1967, which some reports say Anger arranged to screen his Lucifer Rising footage, and other reports say Bobby had set up as a showcase for his band. By all reports, the evening was kind of a disaster. According to Bobby... Anger dropped acid before the show, and when the tape playing the recording he had planned his presentation to broke, Kenneth flipped out. According to Anger, the night was a disaster because someone stole the film canisters containing the footage he had shot for Lucifer Rising. Anger would go on to blame the theft on Bobby Beausoleil, which Bobby denied. Bobby cast doubt on the notion that there even was a theft to begin with, He says Anger only shot a handful of rolls of film with him, and it couldn't have all been stolen because some of it shows up in a later Anger film. 
Whatever happened that night, Anger's relationship with Bobby Beausoleil was permanently affected. The next day, Bobby returned to Anger's house, thinking he'd pack up his stuff and move on. Anger had already locked Bobby out, hung white sheets on all the windows, and removed the engine from Bobby's car and put it inside the house, up on an altar. Bobby broke into the house, took his engine back, put it back in his car, and headed down to L.A., Taking a brief break to join a march on Washington where he tried to levitate the Pentagon and got in a shouting match with Norman Mailer, Kenneth Anger spent the next year or so publicly accusing Bobby Beausoleil of stealing from him. Then, Anger moved on to bigger stars. He started hanging out with the Rolling Stones and Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. Mick Jagger would compose the score for the movie Anger edited out of his footage of Beausoleil called Invocation of My Demon Brother, which debuted in August 1969. Anger wouldn't finish the film he'd call Lucifer Rising until 1980. Anger had tried to get Jagger to star in it, but he declined, and instead, Anger cast Marianne Faithful, Jagger's sometime girlfriend, and Donald Camel, a film director who had cast Jagger in his 1970 movie, Performance. The story of Performance and Mick Jagger and the life and death of Donald Camel is a future episode all on its own. So let's get back to Bobby Beausoleil. Back in Los Angeles, Bobby was living in a teepee he had built himself with a pet hawk and four women he referred to as his wives. Then, Bobby ended up moving in with Gary Hinman, a Topanga Canyon music teacher who was pretty much in the straight world, but who let hippies crash at his nice house when they were wandering through the area and needed a place to get themselves together. Charlie Manson first met Bobby when the family was living at Spiral Staircase, near Hinman's house in Topanga. Charlie took an instant liking to Bobby. He saw how Beausoleil had no trouble attracting women, not because he had, like Manson, a complicated philosophy to lure them and a method of flattering and intimidation to keep them, but because Bobby was incredibly good-looking. Rather than see Bobby as a threat, Charlie saw Bobby as a potential asset. Maybe he could help attract a higher quality of girls to the family, girls who weren't so broken down that they needed love so badly that they were able to be tricked into taking it from Charlie. And those girls, in return, could recruit more men who looked like Bobby. Bobby and Charlie became friends, but Beausoleil never formally joined the Manson family. He didn't need them as much as they needed and wanted him. He was happy to hang out, jam with Charlie, and enjoy the attentions of the girls, but Bobby thought too highly of himself to submit to anyone else's will, and submission to Charlie was the driving force that kept the family together. Bobby did connect Charlie to high-quality women. Catherine Cher, the girl Charlie picked up in his cowboy hat who later became a key Manson family lieutenant under the name Gypsy, had been a Bobby Beausoleil girlfriend. So had another future Manson girl, Leslie Van Houten. By this point, Bobby had expanded his period role-playing of his first intimate evening with Leslie, he'd later recall, Leslie and I made love on acid. It was a tremendous experience. I was dressed in a Confederate soldier uniform. I had a sword. 
I had come back from the war. I was making love to Leslie and making love to all the women. Making love to all of them is, is like making love to one woman. When Gypsy and Leslie got tired of competing for Bobby's attention with his main girlfriend, they showed up at the ranch and asked Charlie to take them in. Charlie told them to go back. He didn't want to make an enemy out of Bobby Beausoleil. But Gypsy convinced Charlie that they were serious, and he relented, because these were exactly the kind of girls Charlie had been hoping Bobby would bring to him. Both were very pretty. Gypsy, who was a World War II orphan and a little bit older than most of the other girls, could act as a leader. And Leslie had gone to secretarial school. Manson assigned her to follow him around and write down the song lyrics he came up with as he went through his day. Bobby also introduced Charlie to one of his own benefactors, Gary Hinman. Hinman wasn't going to join the family either. Hinman was a committed Buddhist. But he did have a house and cars and drugs, and he was very generous with his friends. When Bobby wasn't hanging out with Charlie and the family, he was working in the porn industry, building sets and even acting in an X-rated Western called Ramrodder. You, a member of the adult motion picture-going audience of the community, are now witnessing a preview of the most significant film to be shown in this theater this year. It was only a matter of time until a major American studio filmed a strictly adults-only movie. The legal department of this publicly held company, to allay any possible stockholder outrage, has advised the nervous management not to reveal its identity. Therefore, a familiar trademark that has heralded thousands of fine motion pictures will not be seen before the main title of the Ramrodder. Nevertheless, you will see it. Uncut, uncensored, complete, intact, in all the grandeur, scope, technical perfection, beauty, and professional realism of the many great films produced by Pictures Corporation. He got a job at the Girard Theatrical Agency, where he started as a driver, mostly delivering topless dancers to clubs and actresses to porn shoots. But then Bobby signed his own contract with the agency as a singer-songwriter. He was already known around L.A., particularly the Laurel Canyon hippie weirdo occultist scene, as an excellent guitarist. He hung out with Frank Zappa a lot, and even got a vocal credit on the first Mothers of Invention album. Like Charlie, Bobby thought what he was really destined to be was a rock star, but also like Charlie. For Bobby, that stardom continued to seem just out of reach. On the Sunset Strip, Bobby had earned the nickname Bummer Bob, which he hated. When it looked like Charlie might land a record contract via Terry Melcher, Bobby started hanging out at the ranch a lot, hoping he might get discovered too. Of course, that didn't work out. And by midsummer 1969, Charlie and his family were in crisis. Manson was seriously strapped for cash. He had exhausted his ample music industry connections and had come up short. He could feel his control of his followers start to slip. A couple ran away, others defected from Charlie and joined up with one of his rivals, a guy named Paul Crockett. Then the dimmest Manson kid, Steve Clem Grogan got arrested for indecent exposure and child molestation. His defense was that it was all a big misunderstanding. The kids wanted me to. The thing fell out of my pants and the parents got excited, he said. Regardless, Clem had been a good soldier for Charlie, rallying the troops around Charlie's various missions. 
and now he was gone. Clem would eventually reappear at Spawn Ranch, having walked out of a minimally secured state psychiatric hospital. But in the meantime, the family members who were left were starting to become skeptical. When one of his followers asked why it was taking so long for the black people to initiate Helter Skelter, Charlie said the black people were too stupid to get their own race war started. Charlie realized he needed something to happen, something he could point to to show his skeptical followers that Helter Skelter was real so that they wouldn't leave him. He could then move the family out to the desert as planned and way out in Death Valley, he figured they wouldn't be able to leave him. But he also needed money. And so, Charlie asked family member Tex Watson to get in touch with Luella, a girl Tex had lived with in L.A. who sold drugs. At Charlie's command, Tex told Luella that they had 25 kilos of weed to sell. Luella found a buyer who would put up $2,500 up front, But what Tex didn't tell Luella was that there was no weed. So Tex got the money and gave it to Charlie, and the buyer, a large black man named Bernard Crow, otherwise known as Lotsa Papa, got nothing. When he realized he'd been cheated, Lotsa Papa called Spawn Ranch looking for Tex. Charlie got on the phone and lied and said Tex had disappeared. Lotsa Papa told Charlie that he was a member of the Black Panthers, and that if he didn't get his money back or if Charlie didn't give him 25 kilos of weed, then the Black Panthers were going to come to Spawn Ranch and kill everyone they found there. Lotsa Papa wasn't a Black Panther, but Charlie didn't know that. He went to Lotsa Papa's North Hollywood house and shot him in the chest. Then he came back to Spawn Ranch and told his family that he had killed a Black Panther who was threatening to exterminate the entire family. If this wasn't the sign they were waiting for that Helter Skelter was nigh, what would be? Still, it was now late July, and not only was Charlie still too broke to move his family out to the desert, but now they were living on Spawn Ranch in fear that the Black Panthers were coming after them. Charlie still needed a big cash windfall. He knew that Bobby was in the middle of a situation between the straight Satans, the motorcycle gang who hung out on Spawn Ranch trading drugs for sex with the Manson women, and Gary Hinman, their old Buddhist music teacher friend in Topanga Canyon. Hinman had made a bunch of mescaline, which Beausoleil had sold to the bikers for $1,000. The bikers took it and reported back that it was poison, and they wanted their $1,000 back. Charlie knew Bobby was planning to go to Hinman's and demand the $1,000. Charlie suggested that while he was there, why not try to shake Hinman down for more money for the family's trip, or at least force him to hand over the pink slips on his two cars. It was family member Bruce Davis who drove Bobby down to Hinman's place. Manson girls Susan Atkins and Mary Brunner were in the car too, Beausoleil had a knife and a handgun. When they got there, Bobby demanded that Hinman hand over $1,000 so that he could make good with the straight Satans over the bunk drugs. Hinman refused. He said there was nothing wrong with the mescaline. 
Bobby gave the gun to Susan and told her to keep it pointed at Hinman while Bobby looked around the house for money, or $1,000 worth of stuff he could maybe give the bikers instead. Hinman tried to wrestle the gun away from Susan, and Bobby stepped in and overpowered Hinman and beat him up for a while. Hinman still wouldn't give him any money. But eventually, he agreed to sign over his pink slips on his two cars. Bobby called Charlie and basically asked, Are we good? Charlie said, No, we are not good. Bruce Davis drove back to Spawn Ranch, picked Charlie up, and drove him back to Hinman's place. By this time, it was around midnight. Charlie showed up at Hinman's with a samurai sword in tow. Hinman was like, What is happening? And Charlie slashed his face with the sword, nearly severing his ear. Charlie told Hinman to give Bobby everything he had. And then Charlie and Bruce left. Bobby kept beating Hinman, overnight and into the next day, while Mary and Susan told him to hand over his money so he could end his suffering. He maintained that he had no money. And then he made a real mistake. Hinman said that as soon as they left, he was going to call the police. At this point, Bobby was in too deep. Too much had already gone down at Hinman's house, not to mention the drug deal, and whatever else Charlie had going on that Hinman could expose and tie Bobby to, including the murder of Lotsa Papa. Bobby called Charlie. Charlie said, You know what to do. But while doing it, Charlie said, Bobby had better leave a sign implicating the Black Panthers in the crime. That way, Charlie figured, the cops would figure this was retaliation for Lotsa Papa, and then they'd all be off the hook for all of it. And then, maybe the Black Panthers would get so mad that the mythic race war would get started after all. So, Bobby hung up the phone and stabbed Gary Hinman to death. Bobby then put his hand in Hinman's blood and used it to make a paw print the symbol of the Panthers, on the wall. Bobby also used Hinman's blood to write the phrase, political piggy. Bobby, Mary, and Susan did their best to remove their fingerprints from the crime scene, stole a set of Hinman's bagpipes, and drove his two cars, a Fiat and a Volkswagen bus, back to Spawn Ranch. Bobby kept the Fiat for himself, and stashed the knife he had used to stab Hinman in the tire well. It took almost two weeks for Hinman's body to be found. By that point, Bobby and Susan had bragged of the killings to several family members. Bobby's main girlfriend, Kitty, was pregnant, and when she learned of the Hinman murder, she wanted to get as far away from Spawn Ranch as possible. But Bobby ended up driving up to San Francisco in Hinman's Fiat and left Kitty behind. That, in the end, was probably best for Kitty. The car broke down halfway up the coast, the cops found the bloody knife in the car, and Bobby was arrested. He told the police he had bought the car from a black guy, thinking this would match their Black Panther's cover-up story. But they were able to match Bobby's fingerprints to a bloody print left at Hinman's place. Bobby was taken to the L.A. County Jail and booked for homicide. Bobby called Spawn Ranch. Charlie wasn't there. A newish family member named Linda Kasabian 
answered the phone. Bobby told Linda he had been booked for murder. But don't worry, it was cool. He wasn't going to say anything to anybody. Linda got off the phone and talked over the situation with a few of the other girls, including Mary and Susan, who had been there at Hinman's. They didn't feel guilty. Charlie had told them enough times that death and life were the same, so they believed Hinman had just begun the next part of his journey. But they didn't want Bobby to rot in jail. Or worse, snitch. They started talking about how they might be able to help him get out. We'll talk about what happened next in a couple of weeks. But first, here's where I should note that Bobby has told versions of these events that differ from the official version, the version used to convict him as an acolyte of Manson's. Bobby has claimed that Charles Manson didn't tell him to go to Hinman's and didn't tell him to or imply that he should kill Hinman. In 1972, while on death row, Beausoleil said he had had his own philosophy and his own group of followers, and that he killed Hinman to complete what needed to be done to fulfill the giant pendulum of death. There is also a version of the story in which there was no mescaline deal, and Bobby went to Hinman's house to force him to hand over money that he had previously promised to give Charlie and Bobby for a recording session. From my perspective... It doesn't make a lot of sense that Bobby would do the dirty work of extorting Hinman on Charlie's behalf, considering that Bobby wasn't really a member of the family and wasn't planning on joining the expedition to Death Valley. But then again, why did he bring those Manson girls with him? And Bobby's statements in 1972 differ from what he said during his second trial, after his first trial ended in a hung jury. In fact, in the second trial, Bobby testified that Manson killed Hinman. But in an interview from jail in 1981, Bobby distanced himself and the crime from Manson. He said, There was never a Manson family. That didn't happen until everybody got busted. There were a bunch of girls, a few guys, a couple of ex-cons, a bunch of kids, some runaways with no support from home, and they were living in a garbage dump called the Spawn Ranch. The sheriff's homicide department wanted to get Manson involved in my case, which was very difficult because Manson was not involved. In 2008, at a parole hearing, Bobby said again that he decided to kill Hinman on his own. In 1970, Kenneth Anger started telling journalists that he'd put a curse on Bobby Beausoleil, a claim which some thought was borne out when Bobby was sentenced to death in April 1970. By 1972, the death penalty had been abolished in California, leaving Bobby almost certainly incarcerated until the end of his natural life. By the late 1970s, Anger was finishing his new film under the title Lucifer Rising. Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page had recorded a soundtrack for it, but Page and Anger had a falling out culminating with Anger giving a press conference in which he announced, I'm beginning to think Jimmy's dried up as a musician. Bobby heard about this, and from prison, got in touch with Anger and offered his services. Anger visited Bobby in jail, and they patched up their differences. Bobby would later recall the visit somewhat emotionally. He did tell me. He said that nobody ever replaced me. He did say that. 
Bobby ended up assembling a band behind bars. And in November 1976, Variety ran with the headline, Manson follower to score anger pick while in Cal jail. Lucifer Rising didn't see the light of day until 1980. Accidentally or on purpose, Anger scheduled a screening at the Whitney Museum shortly after John Lennon's assassination. That same year, Anger gave an interview in which he spoke affectionately about Bobby. I still love Bobby, and the fact that he's a murderer doesn't change anything. The filmmaker said. And then Bobby was flipping through a magazine in prison, and he came across yet another interview in which Anger was accusing him of being a thief and bragging about having turned him into a toad. It really hurt me. Bobby admitted. whole time I was working on the soundtrack and I had written to him and I said, Look, you know this is bullshit. Stop it. As soon as I finished the fucking soundtrack, he did it again. It just broke my heart. Bobby Beausoleil is still alive and still in prison. He got married behind bars and fathered a daughter. For decades, there were rumors that he was an active member of San Quentin's Aryan Brotherhood gang. Truman Capote visited him in prison and included the claim in a story he wrote about the visit. And Manson family biographer John Gilmore also reported that Bobby, at the very least, had the gang's tattoos. But Bobby has denied any involvement with white supremacists, and in fact, has used the resources available to him to strenuously correct what he refers to as misinformation about his life and crimes. He uses Facebook and keeps a personal website, which is mostly about his music and paintings, which are full of heavy metal t-shirt symbology, both goofy like dancing skeletons, and more somber, vaguely occult-oriented stuff like pyramids with eyes. Kenneth Anger is still alive, and at 88 years old, is still making films. He has a personal website, too, on which Anger refers to himself as the most monstrous filmmaker in the underground. Anger keeps threatening to release another installment of Hollywood Babylon, with this one revealing dirty details about Tom Cruise. But Anger says he doesn't want Scientology coming after him. Which just goes to show that you can be an expert in black magic and survive a love-hate relationship with a Manson family murderer. And Scientology is still pretty much the scariest thing in Hollywood. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Today we had three special guests. Sam Zimmerman played Bobby Beausoleil. Sam is a writer at the horror movie news site Shock Till You Drop. Check it out at shocktillyoudrop.com. T.S. Fall played Kenneth Anger. T.S. is the writer of the horror movie Grim Love. And, once again, Nate DeMeo played Charles Manson. Nate's podcast, The Memory Palace, has just begun its summer season. Check it out at thememorypalace.us. If you like You Must Remember This, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod. You can rate and review us on iTunes, 
and subscribe to us there or on the podcatcher of your choice. And don't forget that we have a forum where you can suggest ideas for future episodes. Next season, beginning in September, is going to be all listener requests. You can find our forum at youmustrememberthispodcast.com, where you can also go to find more information about this episode and other episodes. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Sitting on the hill side Watching all the people die I'll feel much better on the other side of the road I believe in magic Why? Because it is so quick I don't